Well, greetings, brethren. It's a real pleasure to have the opportunity of being able to speak to you today. I'd like to focus our attention on something that is on the minds of an awful lot of people. What is it that really leads to happiness and success? You know, there have been all sorts of books that have been written. There's seminars that are held. Uh, people have pursued uh, quests to be happy, to be successful. There are a lot of ideas in the world today. But frankly, when you look at the world today, you realize that most people, for all of the ideas that are out there, most of those ideas are clearly wrong because the consequence, the results that we see in the world around us is not happiness and success. Oh, there are people that have achieved great material success, but that doesn't necessarily translate into happiness. People do a lot of things because they want to be happy. They want to be successful. There's an interesting account given back in Luke chapter 14 about an invitation that Jesus received to dinner one particular Sabbath. Uh, One of the Pharisees invited him over to his home and uh, they uh, uh, were preparing to sit down and to eat a meal and there were a large number of people that had been invited. And this account is is given as they came here on this uh, particular Sabbath day. Uh, Jesus noticed something and Verse 7, we have it recorded. He put forth a parable to those that were invited when he noted how they chose out the chief rooms. You know, when they came into this particular Pharisee's home, uh, Jesus very quickly noted that individuals were sort of jostling for position. They wanted to be recognized. They wanted to be thought of as successful. Uh, They wanted recognition. They believed that that was what made them happy or would make them happy. And Jesus noted as these individuals were going about trying to uh, get the most prestigious spots at the table, he said, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story about someone who was invited to a wedding. If you're invited to a wedding, don't go and pick out the highest room. He said, if you do, You may find that someone comes up, taps you on the shoulder and says, I'm sorry, sir, Uh, this seat's reserved for someone else. You'll have to go and and sit over there. He said, "Uh, then you'll be embarrassed when you have to get up and leave. No, he says, when you're bidden, you go and sit down in the lowest room. And then when he that invited you comes, uh, he'll say, friend, oh, come on up here. We've We've got a place reserved for you. Then... You know, that will look a whole lot better. His point was, verse 11, Whosoever exalts himself shall be abased, and he that humbles himself shall be exalted. The point Jesus made flew right in the face of conventional wisdom. You see, the idea was that if you want to get ahead, if you want to be successful, if you want to achieve fulfillment and happiness, then what you need to do is be ambitious. What you need to do is sort of elbow your way to the front. What you need to do is jostle with those around you and grab the most important, the most prestigious place. You see, that's the conventional idea in the world around us. There have been uh, the political conventions this summer, the Democratic Convention, followed by the Republican Convention. You know, the individuals who achieve nominations of one of the major political parties 
are people who have put forth a tremendous investment of time and money and energy and effort, usually over a period of several years, laying the groundwork to finally achieve that pinnacle of success. Well, my friends, what we find when you look at the pages of Scripture, what Jesus said, the way to real success, the way to real happiness is very, very different than the idea of the world around. The idea of the world around is that you push yourself to the forefront. You have to be ambitious. You know, people want happiness and success. And there are those who pursue that. They don't understand what Jesus brought out when he said, Look, he that humbles himself will be exalted. And he that exalts himself is going to be humbled. God's way is not the way of politics. It's not the way of trying to advance the self and promote the self and, and all of the things that are so characteristic of human nature, exemplified here uh, with the Pharisees. These were men that wanted happiness and they wanted success, and yet Jesus told them that they were going to get the very opposite. You're familiar with the uh, section of Scripture back in Matthew 23. When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees and he said, Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees. Woe unto you over and over. He told them they were achieving, they were going to get the very opposite results of what they wanted. They were not going to achieve happiness and success. They were not going to be blessed and happy. Rather, they were going to reap woe. Now, they didn't set out to reap woe. That wasn't their desire. But like so many people today, they had their idea of what would lead to happiness and success. Jesus bore testimony that the way they were pursuing was going to take them someplace they did not want to go. What we have to understand is this whole world is on a collision course with a place that it does not want to go. Leaders come to power and their idea, they'd love to go down in the history books as, as the greatest president or the greatest leader that their nation has ever known. They would like to be thought well of. They would like to be considered as having produced success. And yet, time after time, there's disappointment. The whole story of human history shows that the way of man is not in himself. Now, many centuries ago, in fact, about... 30 centuries ago, a king came to the throne, and he was an individual who had a tremendous amount of drive and ambition, a tremendous amount of ability. Uh, he was an individual who desired, uh, certainly, to be successful. And in addition, he was an individual of tremendous capacity and wisdom. God had given him gifts in that regard. He writes the book of Ecclesiastes. The king, of course, was King Solomon. Solomon pursued many things in the quest for happiness and success. We're told in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 12, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I gave my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all the things that are done under heaven. This sore travail, this difficult adversity that God has given to the sons of men to be exercised thereby. Well, Solomon looked and observed a lot of things. 
what's going to produce happiness and success? Well, in Ecclesiastes 2, he said, I said in my heart, go to now, I'll prove you with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure. He said, I know what to do to be happy and successful. I'll just have a good time. I'll party. Verse 3, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. I thought, you know, the way to be happy is just to make life one big party. Wine, women, and song. I'll be, you know, just a real party animal, I guess you could say. Well, Solomon pursued that, and he found that that left him empty. He decided, as he mentions in verse 4, that maybe the key to happiness and success was to make great works. He said, I'll be ambitious. I will build and I will uh, design all sorts of things. I will engage in creative endeavor. I will do things and, and I'll be really successful. So we're told that Solomon in verse 4, uh, he built houses, designed buildings, got into architecture and engineering, planted vineyards, made gardens and orchards, did all sorts of things. He uh, designed uh, Water falls and, and pools. Uh, he uh, got into landscape architecture. He obtained everything that he wanted. You know, if Solomon went somewhere to buy something, he, didn't, he, he never had to ask the price. You know, Solomon wasn't like uh, you or me. If we go in and we check and say, oh, uh, now how much does this cost? Or when are you going to put it on sale? Solomon never had to worry about when they were going to put it on sale. If Solomon wanted it, he got it. He obtained servants and maidens, had great possessions, had all sorts of cattle, uh, gathered silver and gold. He was involved in music and had musical entertainment, live musical entertainment. In fact, verse 9, I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. In fact, Verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I didn't keep from them. If I saw it and I wanted it, I got it, Solomon says. Now, what was the consequence? Well, when he looked at everything he had done, verse 11, he said, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. It was empty. There was a sense of futility. Verse 17, he came to the point that he hated life. He was depressed. He was just almost suicidal, because everything was grievous. It was empty. It was vexing. You know, Solomon sought success. He sought happiness. He sought the kind of things that everyone wants. Only Solomon was able to indulge himself in just about any scheme that he came up with that he thought would produce those results. And yet, brethren, Solomon was not happy and successful as he pursued all these things. The pursuit of things, the accomplishment uh, of various goals, all these things are well and good, but of and by themselves they do not lead to ultimate success. The acquisition of wealth, the achievement of, of great endeavors, that by itself doesn't solve the problem. Solomon worked through that in the book of Ecclesiastes. The Pharisees had their way of pursuing happiness and success. Solomon had his ways. These are the ways of this world. You know, Jesus Christ came and he's the one who ultimately achieved the greatest success that there could be. Notice back in the book of Philippians. Notice what the Apostle Paul says 
in Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3, he says, Let nothing be done through strife or vain glory. That was the attitude of the Pharisees when they came into this meeting room or came into this place where a banquet was going to be given. Immediately, they were motivated by strife and vainglory. They wanted to uh, advance themselves above their fellows. They wanted to stand out. They wanted recognition. Uh, They wanted all of these things that people today seem to want as well. What the Apostle Paul wrote was he said, look, pursue the opposite. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. Don't look every man on his own things. Don't be selfish and self-centered. Rather, look on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery, not something to be seized or grasped or held to, to be equal with God, but rather he emptied himself, emptied himself of that power and glory that he had shared with the Father from eternity. He emptied himself and took upon him the form of a servant. And he was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. And given him a name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, brethren, the way that Jesus Christ exemplified was a way very much in contrast to the conventional wisdom. Rather than seeking to exalt himself, he humbled himself. You know, the Bible lays out the way to true fulfillment, true blessings, true happiness, true success. Let me show you something as we notice back here in the book of Acts, chapter 20. The Apostle Paul is on his journey from the area of Greece back to Jerusalem. He wants to be there to observe the day of Pentecost. And as he leaves Greece, he wants to speak to the elders in Ephesus. Ephesus was located in ancient Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, It was fairly near the coast, but was not just immediately there. And it was, uh, uh, Paul didn't want to stop there and be delayed. He was in a hurry, so he sent word, and he had the Ephesian elders uh, gather themselves right there uh, at a particular point where the boat was going to uh, um, was going to dock, and he addressed the Ephesian elders, and he gave them certain admonition, certain warning of things that he knew were going to come about, because he was on his way to Jerusalem and felt like that in many cases, Uh, Many of those men, he would never, ever see them again after all the time and energy and effort he had uh, put in there. So he reminds them of what he had done in verse 20 of chapter 20 in the book of Acts. He says that I kept back nothing that was profitable unto you. You realize God's word holds the keys to real happiness, real fulfillment, real success. 
I'm going to show you some things about that in just a few moments. Paul said, look, when I was here, when I was living in Ephesus, I didn't keep anything back that was profitable unto you. I've showed you, I've taught you publicly and from house to house. There were some things uh, that were taught to the general public or to the entire congregation. And in other cases, it involved personal counseling and Paul helping them and showing them and teaching them testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. So now he's on his way to Jerusalem. Notice the statement that he makes in verse 27. He said, I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God, or as the New King James translates it, the whole counsel of God. What is the whole counsel of God? Well, it's everything in Scripture. It's the entirety of God's counsel. Paul said, I've declared unto you the whole counsel of God. You know, in their pursuit of happiness, success, fulfillment, achievement, the Pharisees prided themselves on utilizing the Bible, utilizing the Scriptures, or at least what we would term the Old Testament. Now, if you had asked them if they believed in God's Word, if they believed in the authority of the Bible, uh, they would have quickly told you, yes. Uh, Do you believe in the law? Oh, certainly. But you know, as you look at the example of the Pharisees, it's very apparent that they did not pursue and follow the whole counsel of God. Oh, they thought they did. What in reality they did was pursue Uh, In many cases, human tradition and custom that they had added layer upon layer to the Word of God. Let me give you an illustration of how Jesus approached God's Word differently than did the Pharisees. There are many examples of that, but let's just look briefly in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, we pick it up in verse 3. The Pharisees came unto him, unto Jesus, tempting him, testing him, trying to trip him up testing him, and they said unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, if you go back and read the history of the time, you find that the Pharisees themselves were divided into two major schools, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. And they argued about the interpretation of various passages of the Scripture, particularly the application of certain statutes and judgments that were given in the Old Testament. And they spent hours arguing about how to properly interpret and apply these particular statutes and judgments. Now, there was a statute that is given back in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1. That is the particular topic of discussion here. They sought to draw Jesus into the argument and to get him to take sides, as it were. The question they asked, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Well, Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 says, when a man has taken a wife and married her, And it comes to pass that she find no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it into her hand and send her away out of his house. Now, what's the meaning of that? What does it mean he has found some uncleanness? She finds no favor in his eyes. He's found some uncleanness in her. Well, you know, that's a little bit vague. uh, And frankly, it's vague in the Hebrew. 
It was vague enough that the Pharisees argued among themselves, the school of Hillel and the school of Shammai. Some uh, interpreted that matter of uncleanness in a very broad sense to refer to virtually anything he didn't like. Some had a more restricted view of it. And so their question was, as they were arguing about this particular statute, they, uh, they were going to test Jesus and say, now, is it lawful? You know, is the broad interpretation of this correct? Can a man put away his wife for every cause? Jesus answered and said unto them, and notice how he answered. Jesus did not go back to the statute in Deuteronomy 24 and argue with them about the meaning of the word uncleanness. Notice what he did. He said, have you not read? that he that made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, there are no more two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Oh, they really got defensive then. And they said, Well, now, why did Moses then command us to give a writing of divorcement and put her away? The reference here to Deuteronomy 24.1. Jesus then corrected them. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then he went on giving a far more narrow interpretation than any of them had ever imagined. He said, you know, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for a fornication, porneia in the literal Greek, having to do with a, a gross immorality. Uh, it's a word that is translated harlotry uh, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Many of the passages in Jeremiah that refer to Israel playing the harlot, uh, the, uh, that's the word that is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the word that's used back in Revelation when it talks about uh, uh, the false church being the mother of harlots and abominations. Jesus said, whosoever shall put away his wife except for porneia and shall marry another commits adultery, and whosoever marries her that is put away does commit adultery. Well, this created consternation among even his disciples uh, who had not realized that marriage was such a serious matter. Now, note the point here. How did Jesus answer the question? He said, let's go back to the beginning. Let's understand what it is that God is after. Jesus did not argue the point on some narrow technical ground. What did Jesus do? He said, let's look at the whole counsel of God. Let's look at what God is really after. You want to talk about the law, the Torah? That's fine. The book of Genesis is the first book of the Torah. Let's go back to the beginning of Genesis. Let's see what was God's intention from the beginning. And Jesus said, you know, if you really want to know how many wives God wanted a man to have, then you look at the fact, how many did he create for Adam? He created one man and one woman and said, they two shall be one. He didn't say they three or they four or they five or six or whatever it is. He didn't create one man and a whole bunch of women. He didn't create one woman and a whole bunch of men. He didn't create Adam and Steve. He created Adam and Eve. If you really want to know God's intent and God's purpose, then look at what God did. 
look at it from the beginning. Now, the Bible is filled with examples and illustrations. And these are something that are called testimonies in the Scripture. The word testimony in the Old Testament, in fact, let's just go back at this point to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, and we'll pick it up uh, here in verse 7. The law of the Lord, the Torah, is perfect, converting the soul. It's complete. It will uh, restore your life, change your life. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God's testimony. You know, testimony, it's a word that is used throughout the Old Testament referring to the testimony. Sometimes the word is translated witness. Sometimes it's translated testimony. It is descriptive of something that is witnessed or testified of, something that is born record of, born witness of. Uh, let me show you an example. Uh, if we look at the book of Hebrews chapter 11, gives us a little bit of an idea. You can go through, and you might want to do this sometime, make a Bible study of the word testimony or um, as you go through and look at all of the ways that it's used. But let me show you an example in Hebrews 11 and verse 1. Or uh, 11.1 talks about faith, faith the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now notice verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than that of Cain, by which he obtained witness or testimony that he was righteous. God testifying of his gifts, and by it, he being dead, yet speaks. You see, Abel's life was cut very short, and yet there is a record, there's a testimony. God bears testimony back in Genesis chapter 4, and he tells you that Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock, that God was pleased, that God took note of Abel's sacrifice. God was not pleased with Cain because Cain came in a different attitude and a different spirit and did not follow God's instructions in the way that Abel did. Abel's life was short, but God bore witness. God gave testimony and caused a testimony of Abel's life to be recorded, and you can look at it and you know what God thinks. You see, the essence of the testimonies is that you can know what God thinks. How does God look at a particular subject? There are things that you can't point to a specific verse in the Bible that just in a very uh, succinct thou shalt, thou shalt not format lays out on every single subject. Matthew 19, the example the Pharisees used to try to trip Jesus up. They quoted one of the statutes. That's what they were arguing about. Jesus did not get into an argument with them about the meaning of this one particular word. What he did was say, let's look at what God bore record of. What is the testimony of Scripture? Let's go back and see the record. Let's go back to the beginning. God made two people. He made Adam and Eve, male and female, and said, They twain shall become one flesh. And from that, Jesus then drew the conclusion, What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. So Jesus 
expounded about the sanctity of marriage based upon the testimony recorded in Genesis chapter 2, chapter 1 and chapter 2, where we read of Adam and Eve and, and God's creation of, the, of our first parents. So this gives us a little bit of perspective. God testifies to the way that brings happiness, blessing, and success. The testimonies of God will make wise the simple. We're all of us born knowing virtually nothing. You know, the primary thing a little baby knows when he's born is that he's, uh, the process of getting out has been uncomfortable and he's hungry. And uh, uh, he has to learn an awful lot. People want to be happy. They want to be successful. There are all sorts of ideas and theories that come up. There are books that are written. People have made fortunes off of saying that they're going to teach you how to be happy, how to be successful. There are those who pursue the course of wine, women, and song. There are those that throw themselves into projects and accomplishment and achievement. There are those that take a political approach like the Pharisees and try to make themselves important and jostle themselves to the front of the crowd and grab the chief spot. And they think that this is going to produce happiness. This is going to produce success. If you really want to know the answer, then what you have to look in the Scriptures is what does God testify? What is the testimony? What is the record? That will produce that. I'm going to show you, and the list I'm going to give you is not an exhaustive list. You know, you can go into the New Testament, and Jesus laid out what are called the seven Beatitudes uh, recorded there in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, seven blessings. And the word means both uh, blessed and happy, the, the sense of the word in the Greek there in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Actually, the word that's used in the Old Testament uh, is. Tr- a similar word is translated both blessed and happy, depending on the context. That's where the, uh, uh, if you just notice here in Psalm 1, verse 1, that's perhaps uh, our best-known uh, song in the hymn, in the hymn book uh, over the years, uh, Psalm 1. Blessed and happy is the man. Now, there's a reason why in the hymnal it's rendered blessed and happy. The King James translation renders Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man. And in the hymnal, we sing it blessed and happy. That's because uh, the Hebrew word that is used here uh, carries with it the connotation of both being blessed and being happy. God testifies of something. Now, I'm going to take you through uh, basically seven things that uh, uh, God gives testimony to in the pages of Scripture. Uh, primarily here we're going to look at some from the Old Testament. There are plenty of places you can go, and the list I'm giving you is not exhaustive. But if you really want to be blessed and happy, what does God bear testimony that you need to do? Well, notice right here, Psalm 1, verse 1. Blessed and happy is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law does he meditate day and night. He's going to be like a tree planted by the river. You know, a tree planted by the river uh, makes it through dry seasons because that tree is where there's a continual source of moisture. The ungodly are contrasted with that. They're very temporary. They're going to be driven away just like the chaff uh, being blown away uh, when the... uh, 
um, you know, when the, when the grain has gotten ready. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Notice, though, as we go back to verse 1, blessed and happy is the man that doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly, doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. Now, you know, that pretty well takes care of everything from the time you get up in the morning till you go to bed at night. Because from the time you get out of your bed, you're generally either standing or sitting or walking. So, this tells you what to do, the kind of standing, sitting, and walking to avoid. And, you know, let's face it, most of the time that any of us get into trouble, uh, it's more likely to be when you're awake than when you're asleep. So, this covers all your waking moments. Not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, not pursuing the ways that people who are ungodly will encourage. You're not standing in the way of sinners, not hanging around with people that hold God's law and God's word in contempt. You're not sitting in the seat of the scornful, having this attitude that uh, of scorning and, and uh, uh, ridiculing and, and all of the things that, that go with that. You see, the way we walk is very important. If you want to, if you want to be happy and successful, then it's pretty important not to walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, Let's go back to Psalm 89. Let's notice a little more. Psalm 89, and uh, uh, we'll notice here in verse 15, Blessed is the people, blessed and happy is the people that know the joyful sound. They shall walk, O Lord, in the light of your countenance. You know, God's word is a lamp. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our paths. Blessed and happy are the people that know the joyful sound because they're going to walk in the light of God's countenance. They're going to uh, go a way of life that is testified to by God, by the Creator. You know, we're told uh, various places in the Scripture, You could, let's, let's go back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, notice verse 1. Blessed and happy are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord, the Torah. Blessed and happy are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. If you're seeking God with your whole heart, you will be keeping his testimony. That simply means that you want to be like God. You want to think like God. You want to uh, put into every aspect of your life the way of God. So you walk in the law of the Lord, the Torah. That includes the testimonies, the statutes, the judgments, the entire way of life. Some things are specifically stated. There's specific commandments. There's specific statutes that deal with specific circumstances and situations that reveal to us the mind of God. But there are other simply examples. Sometimes they're good examples. Sometimes they're bad examples. They're examples of people of whom God disapproved. And they're examples of those of whom God did approve. God bears record. He bears testimony of an individual's life. And so you read about... uh, 
Abel or Noah or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or King David. Or you read about people like Cain. You read about individuals like uh, uh, wicked Ahab and Jezebel. Uh, You read of individuals of whom God also gives testimony. You read of examples good and bad. So we're told, blessed are they that keep his testimonies. They look at what God bears record of because they're seeking him with their whole heart. So they want to know the mind of God. They're blessed and happy because they walk in the law, the Torah, the whole guidelines of God. You know, the word Torah is a broader word. When we think of law in English, uh, we tend to think more of, of statutes, which are a part of the law, but they, they're only one aspect. Because when you say law in English, you, you tend to uh, think of specific laws on the books. We think even in our secular society, uh, laws that, that regulate every specific thing from the speed that you can drive on certain highways and all sorts of, of details. You have laws, you have judgments that, that apply those things and uh, establish certain penalties. But law in the Scripture, Torah, is a much broader word. You see... The statutes and the judgments are a part of the Torah. But so also are the testimonies, the examples, everything from Genesis 1-1 on. You know, the, the Torah specifically refers to the entire first five books. There are many examples and illustrations. You see, the point is, if you're walking with God, then you have to walk the way God walks. You have to walk where He walks. You know, to walk with God involves obedience to God. It involves a whole approach. Back in 1 John chapter 2, in verse 6, it says, He that says he abides in him ought himself also to walk even as he walked. To abide in Christ. To abide with God. That simply means to be with. To dwell with. Well, if you're going to abide in him, you have to walk as he walks. You've got to go where he goes. You've got to go the way that he goes. You have to agree with God. Can two walk together lest they be agreed? You know, ultimately what you and I have to do is we have to come to agree with God. We've got to come to understand God's viewpoint, God's perspective. And that's the only way that leads to real happiness and success. Walking with God, understanding God's perspective. God uh, gives us His ways. He gives us testimony to make wise the simple, because we all start out simple. And we need to grow in wisdom and, and perception and understanding, appreciating the things that God values, learning to despise the things that God hates. You know, the things that our world exalts, Well, John expresses it in 1 John 2. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's not of the Father, it's of the world. Well, this world is based on a culture, a society, a civilization that is based upon the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Can you imagine what had happened to the advertising industry if they were suddenly put in a position where they could no longer appeal to either the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, or the pride of life. 
told you can advertise, you can advertise all you want, but you cannot appeal to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Well, frankly, most of them would just throw up their hands and go out of business because they don't know how to uh, advertise in any other way. That is the basis of which this world civilization is built, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden and the choice of the wrong tree. God is going to establish a totally different civilization. You know, mankind's civilization is built upon the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It has not produced happiness and success. It has produced strife and hurt and turmoil and every sort of thing. God offers us his testimony. And it tells us how to walk in a way that will produce happiness and success. So blessed and happy is the man that really walks in the way of God. Does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Rather, uh, he walks in the Torah of the Lord. Is guided by God. Now, let's notice something else uh, here in the Psalms. Let's turn over to Psalm 2. Let's notice another aspect of, of being blessed and happy. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? The people imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, notice as we come on down, verse 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Blessed and happy are those who trust in God. You know, one of the reasons a lot of people aren't happy is because they're filled with anxiety. They're uptight, they're worried, they're anxious, and their life is, well, is the result of that. Blessed and happy are all those that put their trust in Him. When you have trust and confidence in God, when you really know God, and have, then you have that trust and that confidence, you're blessed and happy. There's a sense of peace, a sense of serenity, a sense of security because you know you're in the hands of the one that loves you and that has all power. You know, it's interesting, you see, with a little child, if they're scared, if they're frightened, they can get to mommy and daddy and be picked up in mommy and daddy's arms and held. All of a sudden, their confidence returns. Why is that? Well, you see, they trust in their parents. They believe that their parents love them and that their parents can take care of them. And so there's a sense of confidence. If you and I have that mind, that attitude. Notice it says in in, uh, Psalm 34, here we'll pick it up in verse 6. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps round about those that fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed and happy is the man that trusts in him. You're blessed. You're happy. You're on your way to success when you really put your confidence and your trust in God. That's the, that's the important thing. Well, there are many other places that we could look uh, uh, let's uh, note back here in uh, verse in chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 1 says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. He heard my cry. Notice in verse 4, 
blessed. Blessed and happy is that man that makes the Lord his trust and respects not the proud, nor such as turn aside the lies. He's not all worried and anxious about the proud, about those who are powerful and those who seemingly are in a great position to do all sorts of things because he makes he makes the Lord his trust. Notice one other place. We'll just notice one example in Proverbs. Proverbs 16. And uh, notice in verse uh, 20. He that handles a matter wisely shall find good. Whoso trusts in the Lord, happy is he. Now the word translated happy here in Proverbs 16.20 is the same word that's translated back in Uh, Psalms as blessed. It means blessed and happy. He who trusts in the Lord, trusts in the eternal, has confidence in God, happy is he. You know, there's a sense of confidence. The very opposite of that anxiety and that fearful attitude. Now, let me show you something else back in Proverbs 32, or excuse me, Psalm 32. In Psalm 32... In verse 16, where it says, excuse me, uh, Psalm 32, verse 1, it says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputes not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. You know, a third thing that God gives testimony to that produces happiness and success is to be forgiven. You know, one of the things that makes you blessed and happy is if your transgression is forgiven, your sin is covered. God does not impute iniquity to you. Oh, what a sense of relief. Out from under guilt. Out from under the sense of shame and guilt that that pull down so many people. You know, let me show you an example back in Luke chapter 7. This is, again, a story of Jesus coming to the home of a particular Pharisee, a man by the name of Simon. Simon the Pharisee wanted to sort of check out this teacher from Galilee. So he invited him over to his home and invited some of his Pharisee friends to uh, come uh, as well. And you read the story uh, here in Luke chapter 7. And we find that uh, when Jesus came in, all these Pharisees gathered around and uh, they sat down. And uh, we'll pick up the account in verse 17 of Luke 7. A certain woman in the city who was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus was sitting at meat in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster box of ointment. She stood at his feet behind him, weeping and crying, began to wash his feet with tears and to wipe them with the hairs of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. And the Pharisee, needless to say, was shocked. When the Pharisee saw what was going on, he spoke within himself. His response is, well... I certainly know this man isn't a prophet. If this man were a prophet, he would have known what manner of woman this is, the one that's touching him. He would realize that's a sinner. 
Well, I'd never let anybody like that get close to me. And Jesus said, Simon, I have a story to tell you. I've got a question I want to ask. There was a certain man that had, some, had a couple of men who owed him a lot of money. Well, one of them owed him a lot of money, and the other owed him a little bit of money. One owed 500 pence. That would be over a year's salary. The other, 50. And they had nothing to pay. They weren't able to pay the debt, and he just simply forgave both debts. Now, which of these do you think will love him the most? Simon thought about it, and he said, well, I guess the one to whom he forgave the most. And Jesus said, you've rightly judged. He said, Simon, you, you see that woman over there? You know, when I came into your house, you didn't provide me with any water to wash my feet, a customary practice in a society where most people got where they went by walking. He said, you didn't provide me any water to wash my feet and, and sort of uh, refresh myself. This woman washed my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You didn't greet me with a fond embrace. You didn't kiss me on the cheek to welcome me to your home and, and that sign of Eastern hospitality. You know, since I've gotten in here and, I, and I'm sitting down, this woman has been kissing my feet. You didn't provide me any oil to anoint my head, you know, sort of freshen up that way. This woman has anointed my feet with ointment. I say, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. To whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. He told her, he said, your sins are forgiven. He told the woman in verse 50, your faith has saved you, go in peace. You know, this woman was absolutely overwhelmed in the presence of Jesus. Overwhelmed with a sense of love and gratitude. Do you know why? You know, she had heard about the kingdom of God. Any Jew growing up in Jewish society was familiar with the fact that the God of heaven was going to set up a kingdom that would never be removed. That's spoken of in the book of Daniel. But you see, up until the time this woman heard Jesus, it never dawned on her that she also could share in that kingdom, that she could inherit that kingdom, she could be in that kingdom. You see, in her mind, she was a sinner cut off from God. And that's right, she was. But you know, so were Simon the Pharisee and all of his friends. But they didn't perceive that because they had never done the things that this woman had done. Ultimately, this woman is blessed and happy because God doesn't impute sin to her. Her sins are forgiven. Her iniquities are covered. What she heard in the message of Jesus was the realization that her life could be changed, that she could have her sins wiped out and that she also could inherit the kingdom of God. She was absolutely overwhelmed with a sense of love and gratitude. Simon and his friends weren't overwhelmed with any sense of love and gratitude because they didn't think they needed what Jesus came to offer. Blessed and happy are those who are forgiven. Let me show you something back in Psalm 41. Let me show you just a whole pattern of life that leads to blessings and happiness and fulfillment. Psalm 41. 
Psalm 41, verse 1, Blessed and happy is he that considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. Somebody who is giving and sharing, helping, building others. Blessed and happy is he that considers the poor. You know, a lot of times people think the way to get ahead is to be selfish, self-centered, keep everything they have for themselves, as though that is somehow going to produce greater success. Many of the Pharisees were that way. They were greedy and acquisitive in their approach to uh, life and life's goods. They sought to acquire. Christ told them that many of them made great prayers for pretense, wanted to be thought of as religious, and yet the reality was that they were on their way to devour widows' houses. They were greedy. They didn't consider the poor. We're told in uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 21, He that despises his neighbor sins. He that has mercy on the poor, happy is he. Again, the same word, blessed and happy. Someone that looks down, that despises his neighbor, has a greedy, selfish attitude, that's a sin. He that has mercy on the poor. You know, the Pharisees got so focused on certain aspects of the law. And oh, they were very meticulous about tithing. They were very, very careful in certain areas. And yet Jesus said, you've left out a few things. You've left out judgment, mercy, faith. These ought you to have done and not to leave the other undone. It wasn't wrong that they were careful in tithing. That's good. But he said, you need to pursue judgment, mercy, and faith. You've left out the most important thing. You see, God testifies through the Scripture of what is important. Paul picks up on these testimonies in the book of Romans. Uh, There were Jews who were arguing about certain uh, things out of the law, arguing about uh, some of the statutes that dealt with defilement, that dealt with uh, uh, access to God. And Paul simply went back, what is God's testimony about Abraham? And Paul went through and explained how Abraham responded to God in faith. And everything else in Abraham's life flowed from that relationship with God. Abraham trusted God. He believed God. Abraham, based upon his faith in God, everything else flowed out. He was justified by faith. He entered into a relationship with God based upon the fact that he trusted God. His obedience flowed from that. Everything in Abraham's life flowed from that factor. So we find right here that one of the things that that uh, is brought out is someone who is giving, who is helping, who is serving. A very different attitude than, let's say, conventional wisdom. Let me show you something else in uh, Psalm 94. Let me show you a different, uh, something else that leads to happiness and success. And it's not something that uh, maybe sometimes we would uh, look at or understand that way. In Psalm 94, and if we look down in uh, uh, verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man whom you chasten, O Lord, and teach him out of your law. 
that you may give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. Blessed is the man whom you chasten. Now, Paul brings this out in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, and he said, No chastening for the, pla- for the present seems to be joyous, but rather grievous. Nothing that we go through in terms of uh, God's chastening, that's not something we look forward to, we anticipate, and yet ultimately blessed and happy are those who are taught out of God's law, out of God's way of life. Blessed and happy is the man that God corrects because you know God always does it in love. He does it for our good. He is forming his character within us. Blessed and happy is the man who is taught by God, who is chastened by God, who is worked with and formed and fashioned. You and I are told by Paul in Hebrews chapter 12 that we have, we're, have a great cloud of witnesses, the lives of men and women that he just recounted in Hebrews 11. God testified of those individuals. He testified of their lives, their successes, their failures, of how God worked in their life, of how he taught them. And he said, we're compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let's look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. He says, look, let's, let's you know, sort of straighten up, lift up the, uh, uh, you know, the feeble hands, the feeble knees, make straight paths with our feet. Blessed and happy is the one whom God chastens and teaches because God considers that person to be his child. God loves that person and wants that person in his family. You know, what father is it, Paul explains in Hebrews 12, that does not chasten and discipline his children? Well, frankly, it would be a father who didn't love his children, didn't acknowledge them, because if he really loves them and considers them his children, then he's going to want to teach them and help them because he wants them to be successful and happy. Let me show you a couple others very briefly. Proverbs chapter 3 tells us that we're blessed and happy uh, if we find wisdom. Proverbs 3.13 explain the importance of that. Happy is the man that finds wisdom, the man that gets understanding. On a little further in Proverbs in chapter 8, wisdom is speaking, wisdom is personified here as a woman. And uh, we're told, as we come on down through Proverbs chapter 8, in verse 32, now therefore, now therefore hearken unto me, O you children, for blessed are they, blessed and happy are they that keep my ways. Hear instruction, be wise, refuse it not. Blessed and happy is the man that hears me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. Blessed and happy is the individual who really hears and listens to wisdom. You know, wisdom involves to hate evil and to love God. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. That represents the beginning, the starting point, and the principal part of wisdom. You know, if you look up the word wisdom, the the very word in the Hebrew has to do with skillfulness. Wisdom means skillfulness in navigating through life. It can be used in certain contexts where it describes to 
skill in a particular trade or craft. We want read of men, for instance, a certain man mentioned back in the book of Exodus who was used to uh, craft certain portions of the tabernacle and the articles of furniture. And we're told that uh, he was wise in those things. He was very skillful in some of that. Wisdom, as it's used in the book of Proverbs, refers to skillfulness. And it refers to an individual who is skillful in life, knows how to properly uh, navigate through life, and that's based on God's instruction. We find this whole way of life that is outlined, that is given. Let's look a little further here as we uh, look at these characteristics. Let's, Let's go back to Psalm 106. Let's look at something else that produces happiness and success. Psalm 106. We start here in uh, uh, verse 1. Praise you the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. He's good. His mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all His praise? Blessed and happy are they that keep judgment and he that does righteousness at all times. Ultimately, we're blessed and happy when we obey God, when we do righteousness at all times. You know, brethren, it's hard to realize sometimes that a shortcut is not going to lead to happiness and success. Because you see, sometimes we're frightened. Uh, We're in a circumstance and we don't know how to extricate ourselves. Uh, We look at a situation and we think, well, if I don't compromise here or if I don't do this or give in there in terms of something God says, boy, I'll, I'll get in trouble. Well, the reality is we're blessed and happy when we obey. Blessed and happy are those that do righteousness, pursue God's way all the time, every time day in and day out. Jesus Christ perfectly walked in the way of righteousness. Jesus Christ never compromised with God's truth. He never compromised with God's demands. Now, Jesus didn't follow the humanly devised tradition of the Pharisees. And there were times when they were uh, really upset with him But it was not because he disregarded God's law. He disregarded their little picky human additions, you know, that involved generally matters of ceremonial defilement. Uh, You find the example of the uh, plucking the grain on the Sabbath. Now, he wasn't out harvesting the fields. The disciples weren't out harvesting the fields. They were picking off something to eat. They were walking along. They were hungry. They looked uh, here, there in the pathway, uh, overspreading the pathway were uh, some of the uh, fresh barley that was ripened and ready to harvest. And they reached over and plucked off a head and rolled the the head in their hands and blew on it to blow the chaff away and had the grains and they put it in their mouth and ate it. Well, the Pharisees, in seeking to define every detail, defined this as harvesting a field because they counted the number of grains and the number of heads and if you did this, then this was harvesting and this was threshing and this was... Well, it wasn't that. It was their human tradition. And they took exception to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ never compromised with God's law. 
But he fulfilled God's law in the full scope and the intent. What was God after? What was he looking for? Jesus Christ set us a perfect example in that. In Proverbs chapter 29, Proverbs chapter 29, in verse 18, it says, Where there's no vision, the people perish. But he that keeps the law, that keeps the Torah, happy is he. The observance of God's whole way of life. The statutes and the judgments, the commandments, and the testimonies. The whole counsel of God. The whole illustration and example of what is important to God, of what God wants. The mind of Christ. Blessed and happy is he that keeps the law, really observes the principles that God has laid out. Let me show you an example uh, in Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verse 1, Thus says the Eternal, Keep you judgment, do justice, for my salvation is near unto you. It's near to come. My righteousness is to be revealed. Blessed and happy is the man that does this and the son of man that lays hold on it, that keeps the Sabbath from polluting it, keeps his hand from doing any evil. Neither let the son of the stranger that has joined himself to the Lord speak, saying, The Lord has utterly separated me from his people. Neither let the eunuch say, Behold, I'm a dry tree. Thus says the Lord unto the eunuchs that keep my Sabbaths, and choose the things that please me, and take hold of my covenant. No, God goes on and he testifies here that even the strangers, you know, this is something, by the way, that's important to understand. And uh, when you read in the New Testament, uh, various places in the book of Acts, Paul addressed two separate groups of people in the synagogue who were sitting in the synagogue. He would start out his address and say, You men of Israel and you that fear God. The God-fearers were Gentiles who sought to join themselves to the God of Israel. What did it mean for a Gentile to join himself to the God of Israel? They were there. They heard the law and the prophets read every Sabbath. Well, part of that was blessed and happy as the man that keeps the Sabbath. You see, the son of the stranger, the Gentile, the God-fearing Gentile, who sought to join himself to the Lord, may think that God had separated him because he wasn't circumcised and couldn't participate in in the rituals of the temple, couldn't approach the altar. But if they kept God's Sabbath and chose the things that pleased him, they'd be blessed and happy. It mentions that. You see, the God-fearing Gentiles did keep the Sabbath. They weren't circumcised. They couldn't participate in the ceremonies of the temple. But they attended the synagogue, they listened to the law and the prophets, they kept the Sabbath. They were God-fearers. They stood in awe of the Creator, the God of Israel. Obedience leads to being blessed and happy. You know, what we find as you look through the Scripture, as you look at the whole counsel of God, the way to happiness and success does not lie in the approaches that human beings take of their own way. It doesn't lie in the way of politics and sort of jostling for front position. It doesn't lie in seeking to exalt the self. It doesn't lie in the pursuit of wine, women, song. Doesn't, 
lie in the pursuit of success. No, God testifies. The whole counsel of God testifies of a whole pattern that produces real happiness and success. You see, you can't walk with the ungodly. You have to walk with God. You can't be filled with fear and anxiety and be blessed and happy. You have to place trust and confidence in God, understand the reality of God and the reality of God's promises. There's a sense of forgiveness, the realization that you have been forgiven, your sins have been removed. You're blessed and happy when you understand that. When you're a giving, sharing person, when you consider the poor, you're going to be blessed and happy. When you're willing to be taught by God, when God chastens you and corrects you and teaches you, when God takes the time to do that, then you're going to be blessed and happy as you yield to that. You're going to be blessed and happy if you're seeking and finding wisdom as God lays it out in the Scripture. You're going to be blessed and happy if you really obey God. God lays out a whole pattern, a whole way of life, the whole counsel of God. There are those who go through the Bible and they try to pick out little bits and pieces and make a religion out of just that. What we want to look at, brethren, is the whole counsel of God, the whole pattern, the whole way of life. And realize that that way of life leads to fulfillment. It leads to being blessed and happy. God wants us to share in that. He wants us to share in those results as a part of His family forever. You and I are learning right now the pattern of life that we'll take right on over into the kingdom of God that will characterize the family of God forever. Blessed and happy is the one who shares in that inheritance in the family of God forever.